Thank you for tuning in to the Tulsa Bible Church Sermons Podcast. You are listening to Pastor Jared Verweel as he continues his sermon series in Habakkuk. If you would like more information on this, you can visit our website at tulsabible.org. We're going to look at Habakkuk chapter 2. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Habakkuk chapter 2. If you have to look in your table of contents, this is just a tiny little book that's tucked away in the Minor Prophets, so take some time and do that. Once you reach your New Testament, you've gone a little bit too far, just turn a few books back to Habakkuk. We're going to look at chapter 2, verse 9 through 19, almost the rest of the, the chapter today. As you're turning, let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we love you, we thank you, um, we do just praise and worship you that, that Christ is enough for us. We sing these songs and we worship you here on a Sunday morning and, and it seems uh, to make so much sense. We get so much clarity at these times of uplifting corporate worship. Our desires are turned toward you, our heart's affections are also that way. But then we get to the week and managing our, our time schedules, our careers, our families. Oftentimes we struggle with this idea, is Christ enough for us? And so I pray that as we work through this text, the refrain of the songs that we sung will just be embedded in our hearts and in our minds. I pray that we would live as Christians who truly believe and apply the truth that Christ is enough. And we ask all this to you, Father, through the Son and by the Spirit. Amen. Amen. G.K. Chesterton once quipped that there's really only one theological topic that can actually be proved empirically, and that's the doctrine of sin. The idea that people, apart from God, are sinners, wicked, and violate God's holiness is something you don't have to dig too deep to see and to realize. It's right out in front of us. But nevertheless, the biblical doctrine of sin is, is on tough days in a modern culture. Most people uh, see that there's something wrong in the world, but the majority of modern people don't believe that human beings come into this world as essentially and unchangeably bad apart from the grace of God. Instead, most modern people believe that our deepest struggles, our deepest problems in, in life are more related not necessarily to sin problems, but to problems of education, healthcare, technology, all the things that, that we look to to give us peace and security in life, maybe financial resources even. The reason we do not understand sin very well as modern people is because we don't understand the heart. And so I want to take just a little bit of time and, and talk about the heart and what the Bible says about the heart. The heart is the place, the Bible would say, is, is where we think. Now, most of us in, in modern context believe that thinking happens in the mind and in the brain. Proverbs 23.7 actually says that as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. The heart is this modicum. It's a, it's a piece of us that, biblically speaking, is a, is a thinking organ, as we understand man. The heart is the place of, of trust and understanding for our anthropology. Proverbs 3, 5, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. Uh, the heart is, is where we go for wisdom and understanding in life. 
It's how we process information, come to conclusions about what is wise and how we can live a wise life with understanding. The heart is also the avenue that filters our desires, the things that we want. Some things we want more than others, but all of those things go through the filter of the human heart. Psalm 34, 37, excuse me, verse 4. Delight in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Now, this presents some major, major issues for our anthropology and understanding the heart, especially when we read verses like Jeremiah 17, verse 9. The heart is deceitful above all things. It is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Typically, our, our modern culture and society today, we are so consumed with the outer appearances, images, what we look like. We compare ourselves to other people based on what we see on the outside, but the Bible is much more concerned about what's on the inside. And the term that the Bible uses over and over again to describe the complexity and the totality of the inner person is the heart. Jesus comes on the scene, and he says, it doesn't matter what your life looks like on the outside. What I'm after is the person of the heart. Paul Tripp says that you and I cannot understand any human being unless we can understand the complexity of what the Bible says about the human heart. Biblically, the heart is the real you. The heart is the essential core of who you are. If you were a computer, the heart would be the motherboard. If you were Doc Brown's DeLorean time machine, the heart would be the flux capacitor. There's no more important term to understand humanity and anthropology in a Christian context than to understand what the Bible says about the heart. Here's the scary part. John Calvin, great reformer, has this quote. It says, our hearts are idle factories. Left to ourselves, because of sin and living in a fallen world, we mass produce idols in our heart. Most of them are actually can be very good things. They start out as good things, at least. Uh, you you want to be successful in your career. That's a, that's a great thing. Uh, God would honor your pursuit of, of hard work ethic and excellence in your workplace. But when your career is loved outside of its proper order, that's when things become dicey. When your career is loved more so than your family or even more so than God, that's when we've got issues. Uh, the whole part of understanding the heart and idolatry is, is essentially it's putting our loves in order, loving the things in their proper priority, something that Augustine came on the scene to talk about endlessly. I realized that most of us, at least, I, I was kind of thinking about this, and I, have, I would say if you walked into our house and looked on a mantle of our fireplace, we don't have handheld idols. We don't have these objects that we worship and, and pray to or light incense to or anything like that, and I, and I assume that's probably true for you as well. In my office, I do have things on my shelf, though, books. I've got a lot of them, and at times they can become idols in my heart. You might not have a handheld idol on your mantle or your fireplace, but I bet some of you have something in your life that if you lost it today, your life would no longer be worth living. 
That's an idol, whatever it is. No one in this room has probably been tempted to sacrifice their child on an altar, like some of the pagan religions you would experience and we read about even in the Old Testament. Nonetheless, I bet you there's several people in this room who have sacrificed their children on the altar of their careers and struggle to have a relationship with their children even today. Idolatry is applicable today, if not more so than it was for ancient thousands of years when these texts were originally written. And if you don't understand what idolatry is, and if you don't understand how idols can become captured in our hearts, you will be devastated and they will shatter you. Even in your attempts to shatter them, they will shatter you. What's needed is a strong definition of an idol so we can understand sin, so we can understand ourselves a little bit better. Uh, Martin Luther defined an idol in this way. He says, whatever your heart clings to and relies upon, that is your God. One of my very favorite theologians put it this way, anything that is more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, anything that you seek to give to you, what only God can give, that is your God, that is your idol. Anything more important to you than God. Habakkuk chapter 2 is a chapter to help us understand the dangers of idolatry. Let's talk about just the, the overall structure of this passage before we get into it. We just addressed this briefly last week, but I want to expand upon it a little bit more this week. Chapter 2, verses 6 all the way through 20 is a taunt song. It's very poetic. Its structure is very tight when you read it. This is Hebrew poetry at its best. Each section, each, each of these five woes kind of stands for a verse in this taunt song from Israel to the Babylonians. The Babylonians were the strongest empire in the world, about 626 B.C. to 539 B.C. Their power, uh, their significance in the Neo-Babylonian Empire, not ancient Babylonian Empire, but the Neo-Babylonian Empire under Nebuchadnezzar, was, uh, it, was, it was unlike any other. They annihilated weaker nations, they oppressed them, and they took their people for slavery, all in order so that they might build a stronger empire for themselves. And God told the prophet Habakkuk that the Babylonians, even though that they would overtake Israel, one day they will fall from power. And so he gives them this song. He tells them, in the years ahead, Babylon is going to take you off into captivity and turn you into slaves. But here's what I want you to remember. Here's the song that I want to be in your head. It's much like the phrase, you've probably heard this before, he who laughs last, laughs best. This is exactly what Habakkuk and, and what we have through this prophet is doing through God's word. You might be the best, you might be stronger than we are right now, Babylonians, say the Israelites, but what goes around comes around. You sowed into the wind and you are going to reap the whirlwind one day, trust me. It's going to happen because our God has revealed it to us. And history says that their dominance as a world leader in the Neo-Babylonian Empire was very short-lived. It was less than a century, a century long. Eventually, the Medo-Persians came along and did to them what they did to every other weaker nation before them. Uh, the song is structured in five major sections. Each one begins with a woe oracle. The judgment is specifically to Babylon, but by application, 
This is a poem that should be read by every other nation after Babylon that has the characteristics of Babylon, Babylon-ish, you might say. If you live in a nation that has the characteristics and, and the sins and the idols that we're about to read about in Babylon, pay attention. Justice might be coming for your nation just as justice came for that one several thousands of years ago. The first, first section, the first woe is to unjust oppressors. It's in verses 6 through 8. The second woe is to those who care only about their own security. They build this massive evil empire by taking advantage of weaker people, the needy and the poor, who can't do anything about it. The third woe is to those who build cities with iniquity, slavery, bloodshed, murder. This is uh, the gangs of New York, city perspective, you might say. We're bigger than you, we're stronger than you, so we can do whatever we want to you, and you're just going to have to deal with it. The fourth woe is to those who engage in drunkenness, rampant sexual sin, pursuing pleasure at the, at the highest degree. The fifth woe is the woe to idolaters, verses 18 through 20. Each of the five woes has three elements in it, and it's, it's very, very tight when you read this. So, so the first verse of the section that deals with the first woe is going to be an accusation. The second verse is going to be a threat. The third verse is going to be a judgment. And each of those sections will follow that distinct order. But the last woe is different. Remember, the last woe is a woe to the idol worshipers in Babylon. The last woe, when we get to it in verse, verse 18, is much different. First of all, it doesn't start like the previous woes. It doesn't start with a threat it start, or an accusation. Excuse me, threat, accusation, judgment. It doesn't start with a threat. It starts with an accusation instead. The threat is the woe section comes after that. And then the judgment that's almost totally different than all the other judgment sections in the poem. Habakkuk is, is using this last section, verses 18 through 20, to summarize and to explain all the rest of them. Everything that I just told you, you're going to be judged for and accused for, is captured in this last, last judgment. You're idol worshipers. And so here's what that looks like. Um, the Apostle Paul did the same thing when he talked about sin in Romans 1. He traced it all back to idolatry. Romans 1, verse 23, the Apostle Paul says that all sin is exchanging the glory of God, of the immortal God, for images and for idols. That's idolatry. Skip down a couple of verses later, Romans 1, 25, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature idols rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Uh, Church Father Augustine, well ahead of his time, he argued that everything that exists is one of two things. Number one, things to be used, or number two, things to be enjoyed. And when you flesh this out, a thing to be enjoyed means that we can rest with satisfaction in it for its own sake. If you enjoy something, it's completely different than something that you use in order to, as a means toward an end. Enjoyment has its own end in and of itself. In other words, an object of enjoyment is not means to some other extent, to some other end. 
An object of enjoyment is enjoyed because of the object, because of what it is. The only way that something can satisfy is if it, not something else, brings enjoyment. Augustine said that humans have these desires, we pursue many things that don't lead to joy in enjoyment. All those things can be idols. The only thing that ultimately leads to enjoyment, the only thing, the only person, thing, capital T, that can ultimately bring joy is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, is what Augustine would say. It's the, it's the person of God. Whenever we turn from God who satisfies to things to be used, our desires become ravenous. We become like wolves in winter, an insatiable black hole. We convince ourselves that we need it, we long for it more and more, and yet it never satisfies at the end of the day. We keep wanting, we keep wanting, we keep desiring. The Apostle Paul, Habakkuk, Church Father Augustine, all of them are saying the same thing. Whatever you look to to give to you, what only God can give is an idol. Idols can be anything, idols can be everything. That's why they're so dangerous, why this is such a subtle sin. There's three major idols in Habakkuk 2, 9 through 19. The idol of protection, power, and pleasure. I want to talk about those three three things. A.W. Tozer said this. I think it's good. Among the sins which the human heart is prone, hardly any other is more hateful to God than idolatry. For idolatry is at bottom a libel on his character. The idolatrous heart assumes that God is other than he is. In itself, a monstrous sin and substitutes for the one true God, one made after its own likeness. Tozer says, always this God will conform to the image of the one who created it and will be base or pure, cruel or kind according to the moral state of the mind from which it emerges. He defines an idol as this. Idolatry is entertaining thoughts about God that are unworthy of him. Number one, the idol of protection. Look down in your text, Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 9. Here's the woe, here's the accusation. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have fortified your life. For the stone will cry out from the wall, and the beam from the woodwork respond. Now, Habakkuk has three direct references to a house here. Two of them are literal with the Hebrew word for house. You should probably have that no matter what translation that you're reading. The third reference is metaphorical. He talks about a house as a nest, like an eagle who makes a nest very high in inaccessible places. The Babylonians built their homes. They built their empires, built their cities, very high, glorious, and grand free from harm and inaccessible to the common person. History says that the ancient city of Babylon, which is also part of the Neo-Babylonian Empire, was once the largest city in the world. On a grid, it was 2,200 acres, about four square miles. It was also thought to be one of the first cities that inhabited over 200,000 people in the world. 
Uh, historians say that the walls of Babylon were, were so wide that at the top of them they could, they could have chariot races on them. These empires, you can actually go uh, to places in Iraq today where we would consider the city of Babylon, uh, this ancient civilization, the Neo-Babylonian Empire existed. Of course, you know the gardens of Babylon were one of the seven wonders of the world, going back to the ancient Babylonian Empire. This was, a, this was an empire, this was an evil kingdom that existed and that had a, an extreme significance on the whole entire world in terms of power and a national existence. But building your own, own empire by cutting off others is shameful according to God. If no one else will, the wood and the stones used to construct these massive palaces, these kingdoms and these empires, they themselves will cry out as a witness against them. But they're sinful, and they're going to be judged accordingly. What's really interesting is that the building materials for Babylon were primarily mud brick. It's, it's very, not very much unlike the, uh, the Egyptian, the uh, Exodus in Egypt. The Hebrew slaves were taken off to make these, these massive Egyptian structures using mud bricks you read about in the book of Exodus. Uh, Babylonian Empire was the same way. Their, their structures, their palaces, their homes were built with these mud bricks. But here in the text, the building materials used, it talks about timbers or beams and rocks. Those are building materials that you would have found in Israel, not in Babylon. What Habakkuk, the prophet, is doing as he speaks for God is he's accusing both Babylon and Israel at the same time. Israel's not innocent from the very same sin that the Babylonians are being judged for. They also built massive structures. Uh, Solomon's temple being one of them that stands today as probably the eighth wonder of the world. It is beautiful, it is magnificent. And those structures and those bricks will cry out against Israel in the same way that all these evil empire structures will as well. They are not free from guilt in this context. A buddy of mine was a pastor in Casper, Wyoming. Any of you guys been to Casper, Wyoming before? Uh, have you been in the winter? A couple, a couple of you guys, yeah. Oh, man, carpenters. You guys didn't live, in, live up there, did you? little bit of a time? No kidding? There's like nothing. I don't know. Why would you live in Casper? <laughs> Oil, maybe? A buddy of mine was a pastor in Casper, and they have really long, cold winters. It's windy. It's like, it's, I don't know. Somebody wants to live there. It's a terrible place to live, so don't, don't move there. I'm sure it's nice for some people if you're into, like, just being out alone, away from people and whatever you want to do. So he's trying to figure out what he was going to do through these long, cold winters, and he's, he's a pretty tough guy he's on the man card element. He's probably like at eight out of 10 or so. So he decides, he calls me up, he talks about this. He's like, you know what I'm going to do this winter? I'm going to buy some weapons, and I'm going to try to become like, kind of like this uh, secret agent spy on my own power. So he turns around, he buys an AR-15, and he just like learns how to shoot really well and does things that men do with AR-15s. We just, we shoot them, aim at trees, and, uh, you know, it's, it's just, it's very therapeutic. If you haven't tried it before, I recommend it to you. The other thing that he did, though, is, is he went on Amazon, and he bought this, uh, 
this lock breaking kit for $40. I don't know if you guys know this. I know great and wise things that other people don't know because I have a degree from Dallas Seminary. <laughs> they, <laughs> Jim, Jim, I appreciate you laughing. It's a very facetious, sarcastic comments. Um, so you can go on Amazon, and for 40 bucks, you can buy a, a lock breaking kit that can basically get into any home, residential, house. You can break into it for, for $40. And then you go on YouTube, and you watch these videos about how to break into houses. And so he did it. He, he buys like this $40 lock breaking kit, and he watches two YouTube videos, and he breaks into his home in like three seconds. Just try to see how, how difficult it is. This is what you do in Casper, Wyoming. What are, the, what are the things that you look to for safety and protection in this culture? You put alarm systems on your houses. You got deadbolts, bottom locks, top locks, garage codes. Do you guys look to those things and convince yourselves that you really are protected because of something that you have on your door at your house that makes you impenetrable? Will a fortified home provide security from disease, destruction, or death that all of us are going to face? I love what one commentator says. Real security is not found in buildings, locks, and alarm systems. The only real security can be found in God. We pursue worldly protection like it's a fad, and we get on the latest trends of it. And some of that's wisdom. We do want to protect ourselves because we do live in a fallen world. And some of us create a, a false assurance and an idol in our life that needs to be shattered at the foot of the cross. As great as alarms and locks and healthcare and medicines can get, nobody is gonna de design a lock that will save you from the day of your death. Nobody is gonna create a medicine that is gonna prolong your life to the point that you will never die. No protection can become your savior like that of the protection of eternal life through Jesus. These things become idols, not only for Babylon, not only for Israel, ancient time, but also for us, contemporary time. Idol of protection. Number two is an idol of power. Look down at your text, verse 12. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. You probably got something different if you're not reading ESV there. I'll, I'll talk about that in a second. Behold, it is not from the Lord of hosts that people merely labor for fire, that nations wear themselves for nothing, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as waters cover the sea. One of the signs of an idol is when fear becomes a chief characteristic in life. When an idol of power is threatened, we panic. We get fearful and terrified almost immediately. In those situations, people don't say, what a shame that this is happening, or what a difficult moment that I need to get through in life. Instead, they say things like, this is the end for us. Something better change, or it's all coming crashing down. 
and everybody's going to be affected by it. Have you heard this recently in the culture, in the news? Do we live in a culture that has power idols that respond with fear and terror all the time? We are constantly at a crossroads between fear and faith. We are constantly at a crossroads between fear and faith. And when we resort to fear, it's almost always because there's an idol of power and control that has consumed our hearts. I want you to look at a couple phrases, verse 12. Who founds a city on iniquity. Literally in Hebrew, that word for iniquity could be badness, malice, injustice, or perversity. Other translation equivalents are badness, malice, injustice, or perversity. When you see the word bloodshed, that could refer, refer to warfare, slave labor, or even murder. Babylonians would take weaker people groups and make them their slaves. It's very similar, again, to, the, to what we see in the Exodus. There's a British poet, Henley. You guys are probably familiar with that name. Uh, you might not know that Henley had his leg amputated as a teenager, yet he went on to one, have one of the most successful careers as a critic and as a writer. He penned Invictus, his most well-known poem, uh, the Latin word invictus means unconquered, maybe even invincible. He said, it matters not how straight the gate or charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Sometimes it's really hard for us to believe this, especially in America, especially in the modern West. But we actually have very little control and power over our lives. You are not in control of the time you were born. You are not in control or have power over the day of your death. One writer says that actually 95% of what sets the course of your entire life is out of your power. It's out of your control. When you were born, what family and parents you were born into, what country you were born into, what time frame did you come into this world? All of these things you had, you had absolutely no control over. We are not infinite creators. We don't have power like we think we think we have power. We are rather finite and we are dependent. Every breath that you take is given to you as a gift from God. You don't do that on your own power and your own ability. You don't control the day you came into this world. You won't control the day you go out of it either. You have no power over those things. Behind these verses in Habakkuk 2, this this quest for power, this desire, this idol of power and control is Psalm 127, verse 1. Unless the Lord builds the house, the people labor in vain. Habakkuk's translation of that would be, unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchers of the city stand in vain. You've got idols of protection. You've got idols of power here. The third thing you're going to see is an idol of pleasure. Look down at verse 15. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drunk. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand, that's the cup of wrath, will come around to you. And utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon <clears throat> will overwhelm you as the destruction of the beasts. <clears throat> You got that water, brandy? Can bring there. I got a frog. <clears throat> Violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them. 
Thank you very much. For the blood of man and the violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. The Babylonians had a distinct idol of pleasure in these contexts, and the focus in this woe is on the indecency and inhumanity of, of how they conquered their victims. All right, Babylon is pictured as a drunkard giving wine to intoxicate their victims, to continue to control them and to use them. The purpose was to indulge in their selfish, evil passions and their desires and to expose them to their very own shame. Therefore, the Babylonians added lust to their violence and oppression. In verse 15, you've got some translation options if you, as you look at that verse. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and you make them drunk. You could translate that, you mix in your wrath. The New American Standard actually says you mix in your venom. With their wine, the Babylonians mixed in wrath. And that noun is commonly related to heat as you study it, especially in the Old Testament. Violence and passion are mixed together for a disgraceful mixed drink here from the Babylonians. Verse 17 references the violence done to Lebanon. Now, Lebanon became a metaphorical expression for luxury, wealth, and the best of what was around. Lebanon, uh, the mountain range was in northern Israel. Mount Hermon in the north is the highest peak in the nation of Israel even today. That's the area that you would know as the area of Lebanon. There was huge mountain ranges known for their thick forests and their massive cedars. Remember, even Solomon called for the cedars of Lebanon when he was constructing his massive temple in uh, 1 Kings. Typically, in northern Israel, in the mountains of Lebanon is where you would find the best vineyards, the best grazing land for the sheep and the herds and all of the cattle. The Babylonians violently consumed that area. They took the best of Israel off for their own pleasure, and they used it against their victims, against them to impress them, oppress them. As you read this woe, you, we all conclude that the Babylonians withheld nothing from their own pleasure, whether it was drink, entertainment, sex, nakedness, hedonistic, pleasure-seeking sins and idols abounded in Babylon. And they were coming into the nation of Israel as they inflicted their oppression upon that. It was disgraceful in the eyes of God. It's the only way to capture this. But living in America today, you can understand how this is possible in the culture that we live in. Why don't you look down at verse 18 and 19, and here's where we're going to land, uh, finish up today. What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image a teacher of lies, for its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath in it at all. An idol is, is anything we look to give to us, what only God can give. Anything you look to for enjoyment and satisfaction that can only be found in God. COVID was pretty interesting, right? One writer put it this way, any dominant culture hope 
that is not God himself is a counterfeit God. Any dominant cultural hope that is not God himself is a counterfeit God. Idols give us a false sense of believing that we are actually in control, believing that we have power that we do not. Uh, Rebecca Piper has a book called Out of the Salt Shaker. Here's what she says. I think I've shared this with you before. Whatever controls us is our Lord. Whatever controls us is our Lord. The person who seeks power is controlled by power. The person who seeks acceptance is controlled by the people he or she wants to please. We do not control ourselves. We are controlled by the Lord of our lives. And I want you to see the juxtaposition of two terms that I read through these pretty quickly when we went through the text, but I think this brings us all the way home back to home base and helps understand the rest of, uh, of this entire chapter in its context. Look back at verse 16. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. I want you to notice the juxtaposition of those two terms, shame and glory. Look at the end of verse 16. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. And glory is a very very technical term in the Old Testament. It's deep. It has significance and um, an understanding that will help us understand idolatry at a different level. Shame, we understand. Shame is, is guilt. Shame is produced when um, our accusations, the things that we have done, expose us. Nakedness is often associated with shame in the Bible. Uh, exposes the things that we have done and, and brings guilt upon us because we know that before an all-holy, perfect, all-knowing God, we are shameful. We have been exposed. Glory, however, is different at a much, much deeper level. Uh, at a basic root level, glory means it's kavod in Hebrew. It means heavy or weighty. By extension, it means significance, importance, Something is glorious in your life if it's a high priority, the highest of priorities. Glory reflects preeminence. If something is, finds glory in your heart, it has the preeminent of place right there. It's the thing you're most focused upon, the thing you're most concerned about, the thing that's most significant for you. All sin is an exchange of the glory of God for something created. All sin is an exchange for the significance, the importance, the priority, and the preeminence of God for something else that's temporary, wasting away, and that will never, ever satisfy. When we sin, we literally take the glory that belongs, the importance and the preeminence of God in our heart. We take that and we exchange that for something base, something completely different. Whatever that thing is, it's an idol. And the reason this is so crucial is because the topic that we're talking about is worship. Idolatry is not just a failure to obey God. Idolatry is setting your whole heart on something besides God. It's giving preeminence of place to a thing that's not God. Has something or someone besides Jesus taken the preeminence over your heart? Have you given something functional trust and loyalty that God should have instead? 
Do you fear or delight in something more than you fear or delight in God? To whom or to what do you look for? For protection, for security, for acceptance, for significance, and for your identity. What would really make you happy in life? If you could only have that, that's your idol. Let's get back up to to verse 14. The earth will be filled with the knowledge. Did you catch that next, next phrase there? The knowledge of the glory of the Lord as waters cover the sea. There's a big difference between knowing about God and knowing God. Habakkuk is giving us a very relational term in verse 14. To know the Lord is to know him personally, intimately, deeply, again, at a very personal level. Knowledge here and often in the Old Testament is a relational term. To know God is to have a right relationship with God. It's often used of marriage relationships. He knew her in a marriage context. Despite Babylonian captivity, one day God is telling Habakkuk that the earth is going to be full of the glory and the knowledge of God. Their glory is going to come to an end, trust me. One day people will know the Lord. One day people will have the glory of God as their preeminent, utmost pursuit in life, and nothing will threaten that. That's the end to which we are working toward. That's the end to which God is working toward. Habakkuk is giving a plan for the nations, spelled out for Israel, right before they go into the most, one of the most devastating times in their history. These guys have exchanged the glory of God for a lot of things. Their own protection, their own power, their own control, and their own pleasures. That glory will be short-lived, and so will yours, unless you exchange the glory of something created for the glory of the Creator. Here's the deal. I read this one time in a... article by uh, David Pallison. I think it's so good. He simply said this. You guys know uh, expiration dates. You guys get food with expiration dates. You get medicines that have expiration dates. David Pallison says this about idols. He said, all idols have a shelf life. Anybody who's over the age of 55 in this room probably knows that pretty well because they've pursued an idol and it hasn't delivered what they expected it would. All idols have a shelf life. The second thing he said was this. You can't just shatter an idol. If you just shatter an idol, another idol will come up in its place. If it's a career when you're young, it's going to be marriage when you're older, it's gonna be your wealth when you're older, it's gonna be your retirement when you're older, it's gonna be something else is gonna pop up in the place of an idol. Idols are just mass produced in the heart. If it's not something, it's going to be something else. You can't just shatter idols. Idols ultimately have to be replaced. And the only thing that can ever replace an idol is a personal knowledge of the Lord of glory. He's the only significant one that can handle the weight of glory in our lives. Everything else we look to for glory cannot be held up by the weight of it. 
Jesus can be. A personal relationship with God is the only replacement for the idols that will otherwise shatter us as we pursue them. If you don't know the Lord personally, and if you find yourself here this morning in life at this place where you have looked to your education, your job, your marriage, your relationships, whatever else it might be, and you're tired of playing those games, and you're tired and you've realized that they don't ultimately satisfy, let me make it really clear that there is something that you can have that is in your grasp that can sustain the weight of glory for you and for your restless heart. And it's a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. John says something amazing about the glory of God. It says that the glory of God tabernacled among us through the person of Jesus Christ. And in him is the weight of God's glory. When you trust him and stop trusting in all these other things, you'll find enjoyment and satisfaction. But you got to trust him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for, uh, again, just for your love. Uh, thank you that for your glory. Thank you for your holiness and for your glory. I pray that we would have the faith, the dependence, the reliance upon you to trust um, that in you we can be completely satisfied. That in you... Um, we can stop with our pursuits of everything else that grow insignificant and meaningless. In you, we find not only life, we find enjoyment, we find satisfaction. In you, personal relationship with Jesus, we find the glory of God. Lord, I pray that we would be a people at Tulsa Bible Church and that you would work in all of our hearts to identify the idols that we have set up in our hearts, not only to shatter them, but to replace them with the one person who can ultimately satisfy it, with Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen.